0: Uh, okay. Yeah, well, it's great to be with all of you. Uh, yeah, and as Catherine said, I thought it'd be nice for us to sit for about 10 minutes and <clears throat> kind of get settled and embodied. Uh, so take a comfortable, <clears throat> comfortable sitting posture. <clears throat> Maybe take a few deep breaths just as a way of really settling into the body. And then letting the breath find its own natural rhythm. Remember that it's not a breathing exercise, it's an exercise in awareness. So, we can allow the breath to come and go exactly in its own time, in its own rhythm, in its own changes. It's just to feel the sensations of each breath as it comes in and as it goes out. Really simple. Breathing in, know you're breathing in. Breathing out, know you're breathing out. If other sensations in the body become predominant and call your attention, simply open to the feeling of those sensations. Feeling them, noticing how they change. They may get stronger, they may get weaker, they may disappear. When nothing else is particularly predominant, we come back to the feeling of the breath. And stay particularly alert for the appearance of thoughts or images in the mind. Soft mental note of thinking or seeing can be really supportive in being mindful of them. Well, you sent in over a hundred (laughs) questions, so it was quite a uh, interesting exercise in reading through them all and uh, uh, choosing among them. Obviously, we can't uh, address all (laughs) hundred this evening, Uh, but there were a few common themes Um, So I'll just begin and I'll I'll read some of the questions and then offer a hopefully helpful response. The one area where I clearly falter, I would say really struggle, is in my ability to sustain a meditation practice. In the beginning, I really worked hard on it, but over time, it has been the hardest thing for me. So the question would be, if you could say only one thing that could plant firmly in me, the seed of my meditation practice 2.0, what would it be? And then how to re establish my commitment to regular daily practice? At the present time, I am only practicing in a sporadic way. That is when it comes to mind while I'm doing another activity, such as sitting and listening to a program related to meditation. <clears throat> And lastly, why is it so hard to make, to make time to meditate when I know I want to do it? So I think this is not an uncommon problem, you know, for people, especially who've been practicing for a long time and we go through uh, really cycles of really strong commitment and we're doing it every day. And then maybe that begins to fall away and we find it hard to get reestablished. So in my experience, the challenge is not in the sitting itself, the challenge is in disengaging, the process of disengaging from what we've been doing. And it's as if we are caught up or um, seduced by the particular activity that we're engaged in and we just find it hard to disengage. So I have this experience in another arena, and it's so obvious to me how it's working. So for the past few years, I've been working with you know a personal trainer at uh, a local health club. And I meet with him every two weeks, and then I do routine at home. And for the routine at home, I can be busy doing a lot of stuff, and I know I have to do it because... <laughs> It's like I report to him how it's been. So there's that accountability. But it's so hard to sometimes break myself away from what I'm doing to go do the training exercises. What's amazing, though, as soon as I do it and as soon as I begin, I enjoy it. And I'm glad that I'm doing it. So why there's that hump to get over in terms of going from one activity to doing something we want to do we know is helpful and yet it feels like there's this little obstacle so a couple of suggestions uh with regard to sitting that if you find yourself in this situation you know where you have the aspiration to for daily practice but you find you're just not doing it What I would suggest is making the commitment to at least sit for five minutes a day. Is there anyone who could not do that? (laughs) I think anybody could make that commitment and actually do it. You know, if you go through the whole day and you haven't done it before you get into bed at night, sit for five minutes. What will happen almost assuredly is that once you're sitting, once you've gotten over that transition point, you disengage and you're sitting almost assuredly, you will sit longer than five minutes, but you don't have to, your commitment is for the five minutes. I think it won't take long until you are again back in the rhythm. Of just sitting every day without being concerned so much about how long you're sitting, at least to begin with, at least as you're establishing the habit again of a daily practice. Is there anybody who couldn't do that? Raise raise your your zoom thumb. You know, it, it's so simple. However, you have to make the commitment, even though it's a minimal one, you really have to take that, okay, five minutes a day, I'm gonna sit down and meditate. I think everything else will follow from that, Uh, because basically you're going to enjoy it (laughs) and remember its value. Okay. There were a whole bunch of questions about concentration So this seems to be kind of a common theme. So I'll read some of the questions. So I sit daily for about 30 minutes. I've been practicing for five years. It doesn't seem like my concentration has deepened a lot. I keep on returning to the object of meditation and immediately slipping away into thinking throughout the whole practice. Sound familiar? (laughs) Does it change during long retreats? Do I need to sit longer? Okay, another, I have been meditating for over 20 years and I have a consistent daily practice. Recently, though, I've had difficulty concentrating, constant thoughts, and missing the moments of peace and stillness I used to experience. I've had difficult times in the past with concentration, but I've always been able to find my way back. However, this persistent sense of unease and disconnection has been going on for a long time. And as I write this, I am realizing that it brings up fear and I feel lost. Last one. I've heard you say that in the beginning you struggled with concentration. I do also. Can you talk about the things that were most helpful? Okay, so this, as you can tell, This is a a common problem. Um, First, it's important to recognize that concentration is an important, even an essential part of our path, of our practice. And the Buddha has said that without concentration, deeper wisdom doesn't arise. So we need to find some ways to strengthen that steadiness of mind, which is what concentration means, steadiness. The example given is of a candle in a windless place. You know, the flame doesn't flicker. And so that's what we're trying to cultivate through a practice of concentration. One thing to keep in mind is that for the purpose of insight, For the purpose of developing wisdom, it doesn't require a super amount of samadhi, of concentration. So what's actually needed is well within all of our ability. You know, and as you probably know, concentration can be developed to very high levels uh, with a lot of powers that come from that and all of it. But what's needed for insight, what's needed for understanding, is just a base level of steadfastness of mind. So I'll mention a few different ways of strengthening it that have been helpful for me because as one of the questions indicated, when I began my practice, I had zero concentration. You know, I had studied philosophy at college, my mind loved to think. I went to India. You know, I wanted to meditate. I just sit down and think for the whole hour and enjoy it, <laughs> which maybe <laughs> been one of the problems. <laughs> the hour went quickly, you know. But I wasn't getting any place in terms of developing that steadfastness of mind. So I know that if I can do it, you know, over over these years of practice, anybody can, because I started from a very low level. Okay, two components, really, of understanding what uh, what are the building blocks of concentration. The two particular mental factors, which is Buddhist jargon for different qualities of mind. And in the Pali Pali language, they're called Vitaka and Vichara. And Vitaka means that quality of mind that connects with the object. So it's like a bee going to a flower. You know, the object is clearly in mind and we direct the mind to it. So that's the first component. The second component, Vichara, is the sustained attention on the object. So I call it connecting and sustaining. It's helpful to keep in mind that that is what you're doing with each breath, right? So to really have this in mind. And I'll give you a kind of a practical suggestion which made a big difference in my own practice. when I kind of changed the vocabulary I was using in developing concentration, and instead of using the language of make more effort, I started using the language in my own mind, myself, of intentionality. So for example, we're If we're working with the breath, or it could be a metaphrase, it's the same principle. We direct the mind to the object that connecting. So usually that's not the hard part. It's really helpful. I found it helpful, right in the moment of connecting to a quick silent reminder to myself sustain the attention for this half breath and just having that intention or or setting the intention each time it's connecting and then reminding myself sustain for this half breath and I think it's helpful to do it for just half breath at a time because if we have the idea we're going to sit down and Okay, I'm going to be with my breath for the next half hour. That's hopeless. But if we have the intention, okay, be with the breath for just the in breath, for just the rising, then connect for the outbreath, the falling movement, and then arousing the intention to sustain. If you do that consciously, even for a few minutes, maybe three, four, five minutes where you're actively calling that intention to mind, I think you will notice that the mind then gets into the habit of that close attention. And this is what we're really doing. We're training the quality of our attention. It doesn't take long for the mind to learn at least for a period of time. So you do this for a few minutes and then you can just relax into a more easeful being with it. If you find the mind again beginning to wander, take another three or four minutes to arouse the intention with each breath. Does this seem clear? It was super helpful for me. you know, And I applied this both with the breath and in the meta practice with each phrase, because I was finding as I was doing the phrases of loving kindness, yeah, my mind would be there for the first phrase, and then it would just start to wander as I was doing the others. So it's the same principle, and it really helped keep the mind steady. Another tool and that. I- I'm gonna just be offering a whole set of tools and you can play with each of them and see which work for you. Um, you can try counting the out-breaths, you know, breathing in and then on the out one, breathing in, out two, you know, one to 10 or one to eight, whatever. That also can help steady the mind something which I've discovered quite recently in terms of strengthening the concentration. And it was suggested by this American monk who I don't know, but I heard, I think I heard a talk or something, his name was Vimal He emphasized a lot with each breath softening the eyes. And so in in the way he teaches it, it's it's almost like a rhythm of in-out softening, in-out softening, whether you do it that way or not, but just to give some attention to softening, relaxing the eyes, because what I and many others have noticed is that even though when we're sitting with our eyes closed, they do not have a function really in the process of being aware, still out of habit, our eyes are very engaged. You know, and even with eyes closed, we can feel them going in the direction of wherever we're attending. And so often we're carrying a lot of tension in the eyes. What I noticed as I began practicing this in a pretty uh, regular way just soften the eyes, soften, throughout, throughout the sitting, I realized that the unnoticed tension in the eyes, even as I was watching the breath, was calling my attention really unconsciously and distracting myself from the breath. You know, so it's that tension there that actually weakens the power of our steadiness. And when I softened the eyes regularly throughout the sitting, it was so much easier to just simply let the mind settle in the place that we're attending to, whether it's at the nostrils or the abdomen or the chest, wherever. And the mind w- wasn't being distracted by this tension behind the eyes. Again, it seems like a very simple thing, but it it made a big difference. I I was surprised. Another little trick. In those sittings when your mind is just out of control, (laughs) you know, you sit down, you're trying to be with the breath. And for whatever reason, in that particular sitting, it's just a barrage of thoughts, a flood of thoughts. What, uh, what I found really helpful, actually somewhat miraculous, is that if I sat, and interestingly, this is, this is almost in contrast to what I just said about softening the eyes. So I would sit and keep the eyes open a slit. Right? So I'd be sitting, feeling the breath, eyes open just a slip and it was amazing to me that that cut through a lot of the wandering mind and it does it for two reasons one is because it's such an unnatural way of holding the eyes you know just open just the slightest amount, just a slit, the very unnaturalness of it keeps our attention there. And because our eyes are open even that little bit, we're connected to the reality of where we're actually sitting. And so there's less tendency to get caught up in our mind-created worlds of thought and image. Again, simple thing, but I felt it really, I experienced this um, dramatic uh, diminishment of the wandering mind. Okay, (laughs) I think that's, uh... so these are questions also related to the sitting practice. And there were many other questions dealing with more how we are in the world, but these particular questions really are about our meditation practice. Um, so I've, I've practiced Saida Upandita's meditation technique of following the breath of the abdomen. Attempt to bring awareness to the beginning, middle, and end of each inhale and exhale. When my mind wanders off the object, I bring it back. Would you suggest at some point that I open my awareness and bring attention to the changing objects? Do you think at some point it's important to focus on concentration, Samatha meditation as well as Vipassana? I've been meditating regularly for 12 years. Having done many types of meditation, I have a primary interest in concentration. Recently, I felt I had done enough concentration but now that my practice no longer has a clear, simple goal, I have lost my motivation. and So the question goes on a little bit. So this points to just um, an important rhythm in practice to understand. And that is both within a single sitting, but also as we look over a longer period of time, longer times of meditation, it's how we practice interweaving a directed awareness on a particular object, like the breath, or a more open, choiceless awareness. And concentration actually can develop in both ways because concentration comes from steadiness on a fixed object, but it also comes and develops from a concentration or steadiness on changing objects. And so that's called momentary concentration. And if we are mindful of changing objects steadily, that itself builds Steadiness and concentration of mind. So we want to find an intuitive balance, and I think you'll begin to, if you if you keep this in mind, these two ways: a directed awareness or a choiceless awareness. You know, and you hold or you hold uh, that frame in mind. I think over time you are going to be able to intuit as you're sitting, okay, right now, which is most important? So for example, you sit down and you're feeling the breath. So it's a really directed awareness on the breath. And after some time, it may be that the mind feels really quite steady on it. You could either continue just doing it, and strengthen the fixed object concentration, or at that time, and again, I would trust your intuition and just explore for yourself. At that time, open it up to a more choiceless awareness, being aware of whatever arises, different sensations in the body, thoughts, sounds, emotions, images. And so then you've segued into this momentary concentration. As you're doing that, maybe at a certain point, you feel like you're just getting spaced out. You're losing the steadiness. You're getting lost again in a lot of thoughts. So then bring the mind back to the fixed object concentration. It's not that one is better than or more important than the other. They're just two different approaches and we need to interweave them in our practice. This can also be done over longer periods of time. So, for example, you know, I've been practicing many years now, and there are times when I've just settled in with a strong momentum into an open choiceless awareness. And so I'm just sitting in every sitting, that's what I'm doing, and it seems to be going pretty well. At other times, and I'm doing this actually right now in my practice and have for the last few months, for whatever reason, the thought came, oh, I think I want to deepen the fixed object concentration, deepen the samadhi in that way. So I've taken a few months, and as I said, I'm still doing it. Okay, for this period of time, I'm just doing meditation on the breath. So especially for those of you who are, you know, practiced a while and have have a little more experience in it, you can really get a sense of, okay, what will be most valuable for you in any particular sitting or over longer periods of time? Um, you know, and so one of the images that I use to kind of hold all of these suggestions is really what we're developing is a toolbox of different skillful means you know and as you practice and especially over many years you know we just learn if, if we're paying attention to what works for us uh, we learn how to use the different tools at different times so i would encourage you in your exploration of developing concentration and insight, just begin to explore these different ways in a really mindful way. So you get familiar with which tool to use, which method, uh, strategy to use at any particular time. Uh, They're both helpful and they both serve to strengthen the mindfulness, strengthen the concentration. Okay. This this is the section on the meditation practice itself. Um, And as you can see, a lot had to do with the development of concentration and getting oneself to sit in the first place, uh, and then learning how to modulate the directed awareness versus the choiceless awareness. There were a whole bunch of questions about how our practice can help us navigate the many challenges facing us in the world. So I'll just read a few of the questions. I am experiencing overwhelming grief. I wake up and simply feel enormous grief for for everything I see and feel around me. The enormous litany to name a few from climate change, abounding unlivable poverty, patriarchal governments all over the world destroying civilizations, wars unending with annihilation now on agendas. That's just the broad strokes. Advice would be greatly be appreciated to be able to somehow be with the enormity of it all. I think we can all relate to that. Someone else wrote in, how do you suggest I maintain equanimity in the face of almost daily news of damage to the earth that is causing so much suffering to earth's creatures? Is it sufficient to focus on advancing my personal path of liberation while the earth burns around me? What course of action would you recommend at this time in our history? The last one. But there were, there were many in this vein. The burning question of this mind since May was, is it possible to have too much equanimity? Over the course of the past several months, what I realized was that my question isn't about whether I'm, whether or not I can be too equanimous, but how do I address issues that no longer cause me to be reactive, but still have consequences that will affect me? This is interesting, it's sometimes strange, navigating the world without the anger that consumed me for 50 plus years. Okay, this is, I think these are really powerful questions, you know, given what's going on in the world, it's, it can be overwhelming, you know, and the intensity of the news cycle, the 24 seven news that's bombarding us, you know, all the time. Uh, It's really hard to know how to hold it, or even if it's possible to hold it. So the question is how to find balance with all this. I think we're all experiencing it to some extent or another. But there are two key elements. I think that enhance our ability to hold what's going on, the magnitude, you know, of the dukkha, of the suffering, you know, that's going on in the world, to hold it all without getting overwhelmed. And the two key elements are equanimity and compassion. What's interesting to me is that. Most people, I think, get inspired by the thought of compassion, the feeling of compassion. You know, it's kind of an, it's a word that uplifts us. And we all, I think, mostly resonate with wanting to be compassionate. Equanimity doesn't have quite the same PR. You know, even in, you know, the worldly news, we can hear, you know, stories of compassion and they inspire us. But how often do we read about equanimity in the news? Probably not that often. It's almost like it's not, not even a cultural value. It doesn't come up that much. And yet, equanimity is the foundation for so much. And it, it is the foundation for skillful, compassionate action. It allows us to be with what's going on without drowning in what's going on. So I just want to talk a little bit about the nature of equanimity, because I think in our world, hopefully it's talked about a lot on retreats, but probably not as much as compassion. You know, so just describe a little bit what the actual mind state of equanimity is. What characterizes the equanimous mind is the quality of impartiality that is seeing things, seeing situations in their totality. So it it can be likened to space that holds everything. You know, space is not partial, holding some things and not others. So the equanimous mind has that quality of openness, of spaciousness, of non-reactivity. It's just holding it and seeing what's there without jumping to conclusions right away and without getting caught up maybe in a conditioned reactivity. But what's really important to understand about equanimity, and this, this really is key, is that it doesn't mean non-discernment. So we can have this spacious, impartial, non-reactive mind and still be seeing clearly what's what. We can see what's wholesome. We can see what's unwholesome. You know, we can see what leads to peace. We can see what leads to suffering. But in the equanimous mind To start with, we're just open to seeing the whole picture and trying trying to understand things from as many different perspectives and many different sides as possible. You know, it's clear, it's open, it's seeing what's what. So this quality of equanimity, of openness, including discernment, this is really the foundation for the arising of wisdom to see how best to respond to the particular situation. It's it's like the equanimity gives us the possibility of asking the question to ourselves what is the most effective way of responding to whatever the particular situation of distress or suffering might be. And it might be our own, it might be people we're close to, it might be the situation in the world. You know, whatever domain or arena that we're considering, when there's equanimity, when we're not just jumping in with our reactivity it allows for a clear seeing and real wisdom. Okay, what will be effective in dealing with this situation? You know, because we may feel compassionate and just have that motivate us to jump in and do something. But if we're not seeing clearly, sometimes it just causes more confusion. Right? Because it's not based on wisdom, it's not based on a clear seeing. So, how do we find this space of equanimity? This is uh, in, <coughs> excuse me, in the midst of you know all of the all of the huge problems that are in the world and maybe in our own lives, how do we find equanimity, that place of balance, of impartiality? So there are a few tools and reflections that I've just found really helpful uh, because it's very easy to be thrown off balance by the magnitude of everything that is going on. So the first reflection, which I think is helpful in every situation, whether those of suffering or not, is remembering that we are not the center of the universe and that we are not in control of most things that are happening. Most things are outside of our control. So to just have a realistic understanding of that, I'll give you a very mundane example of this, but it could be applied, you know, in much more significant contexts. It's just you know, sometime recently I was at the airport; plane was delayed for hours. And it was just so interesting to watch people's response. Some people were pretty chilled out and other people were so reactive and kind of taking it personally, blaming the, you know, the, the, the airline staff. But this was a situation completely outside of one's control, delayed for whatever reasons they were delayed. If we don't take it personally, if and we understand that it's outside of control, really easy to just relax back and you know do what we have to do with an even mind. This can get a little trickier when you know we're facing a really big problem in the world, and we want to do something. But the first the first consideration is. Is this something within some degree of control? Is this an arena in which in whatever, even a small way I can have impact? So just to determine that, because if there isn't, it would be better to address situations where we can have impact. So having this discernment can be really helpful. Another thing that really helps with equanimity is just seeing the bigger picture can help us relax. So I do this in a variety of ways. And this particular way is is really effective, kind of if I'm involved in some kind of personal, I don't know, you know, difficult interaction Sometimes at night, I just go out and look up at the stars. That's all, (laughs) just looking up at the stars and reminding myself of the magnitude, the unimaginable magnitude of this universe. And then I think about my own little life, having this own little difficulty, And just having that larger perspective kind of helps my heart relax. You know, instead of being so bound up in the drama of it all, it just makes more space. And it doesn't mean not addressing it, but it means creating more inner space, more equanimity with which we can deal with it. something that helps with equanimity for me in larger societal problems uh, is reading history. I'm a big fan of, of reading history because it just provides a perspective. So it's, uh, a little while ago, I was listening uh, on Audible to this, uh, one of the great books courses really an interesting the rise and fall of civilizations before alexander the great (laughs) so you know these are thousands of years ago you know three four thousand years ago and it was a history of just these civilizations arising and becoming powerful and And then, for a variety of causes, you know, they begin to decline and disappear, and a new one arises. And this is just the sway of history. And we're part of that same cycle. You know, we may think that the civilizations as we know it, this is how it's going to be from now on, but it's not. Just like everything else, you know, following the law of change. And just remembering that even as I think about all the problems facing the world today based on the current civilizations at play, just remembering the larger cycles of history just enables the mind to feel a little more peace with it, a little more equanimity. And then there's geological time and cosmological time. Are you getting the idea? (laughs) Enlarging the perspective. Because we can be so caught up and so tied into our own little world. And even when it's dealing with very real problems, but we can have a very contracted energy in dealing with it all. And... And it's not helpful. If we can create a little more spaciousness in our minds, a little more balance, a little more equanimity, it actually allows for effective action. And this is where compassion comes into play. Because the equanimity that we can develop through all the Various things I mentioned. It creates that space. And people might think, oh, well, we become so equanimous and so spacious, we become indifferent. But indifference in Buddhist in Buddhist language is the near enemy of equanimity, meaning it looks like it, but it's very different. Indifference is pulling back. Equanimity is a holding of everything. And in that place of holding, that's precisely the space out of which compassion can arise. So this is kind of an interesting thing to examine in your own experience and lives. What is the cause of compassion? It's it's a conditioned state of mind. What are the conditions which bring it about? And here we can see the power of equanimity in giving rise to compassion because compassion arises from our willingness to open to the suffering that's there. Our willingness to come close to the suffering because it's that coming close to it which can actually open that wellspring of compassion within us. But this is not always so easy. You know, there are many times when we don't want to be with the pain and suffering, whether it's our own or somebody else's. because. It can be painful, it's uncomfortable, you know, and, or overwhelming, you know. And so there are times where no, 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 I I can't deal with this, it's too much. So the practice of compassion really is made strengthened by the strength of our equanimity, where we're not pulling back. We're there, our minds are steady enough to hold, to be with, the suffering that's present. And again, it could be our own, you know. Are we compassionate with it? Or do we just wanna get rid of it? Do we have a lot of aversion to it? Or are we open to the suffering that the, the innumerable situations of suffering in the world? Can we let it in? And this is a practice. It's not that we either have this ability or we don't. And you can probably relate to this um, just in your own meditation practice. You know, when you're sitting and you begin to feel some pain and discomfort, is your first reaction, oh, good, let me be with this. This is a chance to come close. <laughs> probably not. Probably the first The first reaction is, I don't like this. I want to get rid of this. But over time, and in your meditation, in our meditation, we learn. We practice. Oh, no, it's okay. It's okay to feel the pain of it. It's okay to feel the suffering. And so we develop that resilience to actually experience what is present. I emphasize this because it's important to realize that it is a practice, the ability to come close, and sometimes it'll be stronger and sometimes not. So we have to be able to uh, be responsive to what our actual state is in the moment. There are times when the suffering, as I say, either personally or in the world, is just too much for us at that time it's just overwhelming we don't have the capacity to be with it that's the time to back off there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that it's an appropriate response when we're off balance when we don't have the capacity so we back off you know and we attend to other things we regain a little stability And then we practice again moving into it. Okay, can I hold a little bit of it? Do you understand this move of we come close to suffering? It gets too much, we pull back a little bit. We gain a little strength, we come close again. And over time, our ability to hold the suffering in the world becomes really strong. you know, there is some there are some striking examples of this, and you know, someone who comes to mind always in this manifestation of compassion uh, is this holiness the Dalai Lama, you know, who I mean the suffering of the people of Tibet and his own and the stories that he endlessly hears, you know, about the atrocities that go on and yet he has this amazing capacity to hold it to feel it and to have a compassionate response in whatever way is possible for him in that moment you know so i really hold hold him as an example of what's possible you know and we can move in that direction Okay, one one last little piece on this. (laughs) I mean, this could be, we could talk about this for hours because, but it is, given the state of the world, it really feels like important questions, you know? And so establishing and practicing, cultivating the equanimity, which allows us to be with the suffering, practicing opening to it, coming close to it, As we come close, what develops in us is a quality of empathy. Because we're not shutting ourselves off, we can begin to feel what other people are going through. And the empathy then leads to compassion. And compassion involves the motivation to do something, to act. You know, and this just goes back to what I was saying before Equanimity is not indifference. It's the foundation for opening so that we can respond and we can take action. Thich Nhat Hanh had a wonderful phrase. He said, compassion is a verb. I love that because it's not just empathy. Although empathy may be a part of it, but compassion is that feeling, okay, what can I do? How can I help? And I love that phrase, which was actually a title of a book, uh, How Can I Help? That phrase comes to my mind a lot, you know, as I'm navigating both my own inner life and my relationship, my personal relationships and my relationship to the world. I feel like it's a mantra of compassion. How can I help? And with equanimity, we have some clear seeing you know, of what we can do. One last little thing on this. <laughs> if you're interested, one story of how sometimes even very small actions can have huge consequences. It's a documentary called A Small Act. So you could Google it. Yeah, I'm sure you. I'm sure you can find it, and it's just about a small act undertaken by this middle-aged Swedish woman that rippled out in the most amazing ways. Uh, and it was really inspiring to me because it shows that even small acts of compassion can have really big consequences. Okay, (laughs) there's a lot on this, but I, I, I was really moved by these questions because they just are so meaningful in these times. How do we deal in a dharmic way with the magnitude of what's going on? Okay, the next one. So if the years of practice I've recently been inspired by teachings on being aware of the witness or knowing the knower, can you give meditation instruction for transitioning from knowing the breath to knowing the knower and any words of advice on holding this object of meditation? I feel I can experience it for a moment at a time when renunciation is easy and strong but surprisingly, even the pleasure of meditation moves me off a of bit. So, uh, knowing the knower. There's been a lot, I, I mean, in recent years, especially a lot of teachers, also within the Vipassana tradition, you know, are emphasizing things like resting in awareness, you know, or knowing the knower. Um, so i just like to clarify and maybe make a few suggestions. First, to clarify a couple of the concepts, because it's not really knowing the knower or knowing the witness. Rather, it's knowing the knowing or knowing the witnessing. Because as soon as we use the language of knower, or witness, we are right in that vocabulary, reinforcing the sense of self, the sense of someone there who is knowing, who is witnessing, do you follow? So to move away from the creation of that observer to the understanding that there is a process of observing, of knowing, of witnessing, right? And that's just another impersonal faculty of the mind. It does not imply a self who's doing it. It's just this process of knowing, of witnessing, of observing. So then the question is, okay, well, we've clarified that aspect. How can we settle into being mindful of that process of knowing? Okay, so one model for understanding this is understanding that What we call our lives is really a moment-to-moment pairwise progression of knowing an object. Knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. That's what's going on. That's like the basic thing that's going on that is our life. Our life is not something apart from that. This is what we call our life. It's just moment after moment, knowing a sight, knowing a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation, a thought, an emotion. The Buddha described this in in a very short discourse, he called this the all. (laughs) Because just in those six short phrases, it describes the totality of our experience knowing of sight, of sound of smell of taste of sensation of mind objects is there anybody who experiences something other than that? It's pretty interesting <laughs> we think our mind we think our lives are so complex and it's, but it's really only six things that are ever happening. So sometimes I'd like to think of it as our life is like a six-piece chamber orchestra and our life is the music that it's playing. <laughs> you know, and it's just in different combinations. And, you know, and of course mind object can cover a lot of thoughts and feelings and emotions, you know, all the sensations of the body, but it's just these six things. Okay, so what's really happening moment after moment, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, and it would be interesting in your practice to see if you can hone in on this, because it simplifies things amazingly. <laughs> this is just a little sidebar. And mostly, you know, smells and tastes, except in certain circumstances, are not predominant. So really, really, it's only four things that are ever happening. <laughs> I don't know, G- given how we think of our lives as being so complex, I love the fact that it comes down to these four simple experiences. Uh, okay, that's, that's just my own uh, particular delight in seeing that. So knowing an object, knowing an object, these two are distinct but inseparable. So, for example, the knowing of a sound, you know, in a moment of hearing. So the sound is the object. Consciousness knows the sound. But they are arising together. We cannot separate them. But they're distinguishable. They're two different aspects of a singular experience. The experience of hearing or seeing. To give you an example of how things can be inseparable and yet distinct, very simple example. Okay, can you see what I'm holding up? It's just, to the back of the remote. But when you're looking at it, there are two different things going on. There's the color and the form for the shape. These are two distinct things. Color is not shape and shape is not color, but they're inseparable. The color is in a shape and the shape has a color. So it's just to understand that the knowing an object inseparable, but distinct. Okay, when we understand that, and we begin to have enough momentum in our practice where we're not simply struggling to come back to be with the breath. You know, when we've, when we've built up a certain momentum where it's kind of rolling along, that's the time when we can really begin to explore these two aspects. And it's, it's kind of like foreground background In each moment, both are present. It's the sound and the knowing of it. So they're both present. But one, either the object or the knowing, one of them will be in the foreground of our attention and the other will be there, but more in the background. And so in the exploration of knowing the knowing, and again, when there's enough momentum in practice where it's just kind of rolling along, you can choose to emphasize oh, either the object, or sometimes you could ask or prompt yourself, well, know the knowing. It's very interesting to do this and also to understand that generally the object will be more predominant because it's more tangible. The knowing aspect of the mind is immaterial. It's it's not a material phenomenon. So it's much more subtle. So generally it's the objects which we're mostly most aware of. But what's interesting, and this is right out of the classical texts, it says that to our practice, as the object becomes clearer, the consciousness knowing the object becomes clearer. And I found this to be true in my practice. You know, So as it deepened and the steadiness was there and the mindfulness was there more and more effortlessly And the object got so clear. It's as if that clarity opened up the mindfulness of the knowing aspect. Are we still together? (laughs) I mean, this is getting into more subtle aspects of the practice, but it's really interesting. Okay, another way to... Um, tune into the knowing and I've talked about this a lot over the years so many of you probably heard me say this a million times but it really changed my practice and that is reframing my languaging of what I was doing in the passive voice You know, and normally we language things in the active voice. You know, I'm hearing, or I'm seeing, or I'm seeing a sound, I'm seeing a sight, or I'm hearing a sound. Passive voice is a sound being known, a sensation being known, a thought being known. So I first kind of really stumbled upon this in the walking practice because that was really easy to do that. that the sensations of the walking was so tangible you know, and effortless. You're just walking, feeling the sensations of the movement. And I certain oh, sensations being known. And the power of that passive voice is it takes the subject out of it. There's no self-involved there linguistically, right? It's just sensation being known, thought being known, sound being known, and it's all happening effortlessly and spontaneously. And because we're framing it in the language of being known, that language is kind of a prompt for us to be aware of the knowing because we're referring to it in the, very, in the very way we're languaging our experience this being known this being known this being known right so just automatically starts to turn our attention to the knowing aspect even as we're aware of what it is that's being known so one last little exercise if you do this, I encourage you to experiment for those of you who haven't because as I said, it transformed my practice and made it so much more easeful because there's no, no, there was no longer a me trying to do something. It was just things being known and it was happening all by itself. So then if you get into that rhythm and you could you could language it you know for a little bit until you until the language is embedded in how you're experiencing it, but then you don't need the language. You're just in that mode of things being known, and then the question, known by what? So this really directs the attention to an investigation of. the nature of awareness, the nature of knowing. Um, So this is just another way of dropping into this. Somebody just texted that they couldn't hear me well. Is others having that problem or can you hear okay? Okay. Um, Yeah, so that was, This exploration of the nature of awareness, the nature of knowing, is a very interesting part of our practice. And so, you know, when it feels appropriate for you, in your practice, uh, these are certain ways of exploring it. Okay, there's some time now, just, you know, if you have some live questions, uh, Catherine is going to... read some to me or you could type some into the Q&A tab on the Zoom.
1: Yes, so like Joseph said, the Q&A, you can type in your question in the Q&A button on the bottom of your Zoom screen, and I will read them aloud. Um, So the first question comes in, thank you for joining the LEAP program at Spirit Rock with Sally in June. We are practicing being awareness. What methods do you use to be aware of awareness? I'm finding this difficult.
0: Well, I think it's the piece that I just expressed, (laughs) you know, which uh, are ways of. So I was using the term knowing rather than awareness, Uh, but it's the same. The same. even though in a philosophical discussion we could get into are they the same thing are they different you know how are we using the term awareness but for the purpose of experiencing you know what guy and sally are talking about or what i just mentioned everything i said about becoming mindful of the knowing it's exactly the same thing as becoming mindful of the awareness becoming aware of the awareness So I would just apply, you know, those various suggestions, which I just made, uh, to that.
1: Um, Thank
0: you. Maybe just one other prompt that could be used. Um, simple prompt. You know, you're sitting. Remind yourself to know that you're knowing. Because the knowing is there. it's, It's not something that... You know, we have to. It's hiding under a rock. <laughs> As I should say it's there in every moment, knowing an object, knowing an object. So it's always there, and just a simple prompt: know that you're knowing will be will be. Yeah, it'll be a prompt for directing your attention to that aspect of the process. Thanks, Joseph. The next
1: question comes in, and it says. It asks, um, is equanimity the same as letting go?
0: Well, I would say it's the same as letting go of reactivity. Yeah, and, and in some way it does imply um, the mind that is not holding on to any one particular thing it's because it's that quality really of openness um, yeah, I, that, that's a. I think that's a, a nice, a, a nice way also of understanding a dimension of equanimity, uh, that we're really not holding on to anything at that point. Um, yeah.
1: Thanks. What is the relationship of solitude with meditation?
0: With, with meditation. Yes. Well, I love solitude (laughs) (laughs) or certainly periods of it, you know, our culture is so speedy and so much input and we are just overwhelmed (laughs) energetically. By it all. So to have periods of solitude is so healing and so restful, even when in the solitude, for example, if we were on a retreat and maybe a a solitary retreat, a home retreat, or wherever, just the silence and the solitude, even when difficult things may be coming up. It is creating the space for them to come up and out, up and out. We're, we're releasing you know, so many levels of tension, both physical, emotional, mental. We're giving the space for the release of all that. So I think it's just one of the most beautiful and perhaps misunderstood or undervalued Aspects of a life, you know, and of course, some people who are drawn to it in a big way <laughs> might might go off and live in a cave, you know. It's, there are stories of these great yogis, you know, for fifty years. But I think for most of us, it's not necessarily that, but to have periods of silence and solitude is just such a support for our understanding, for clarity, for just finding some inner peace. Um, can you tell I'm giving a plug for it? Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and really, it's it, it, it might be challenging, but I think worth considering, yeah. you know, each of you have your own life situations and circumstances, so you would need to have to figure out for yourself Okay, is there a way where I can build in some periods of this? Maybe it's half a day or a day, you know, or a week or whatever. But I would really encourage you to practice that kind of disengaging just from the busyness of our lives. It's a beautiful thing. In a way it's a very poetic space you know it's just our hearts our hearts just open and we get so so much more attuned to what's going on um,
1: yeah. go for Thank it. you <laughs> where does gratitude fit in um, with the brahma viharas
0: Um, well, um, I mean, I think it's, it, it could be seen as a quality of metta, you know, of the loving kindness, uh, but in a way it has its own special quality. And Saido Pandita once said that gratitude. Is one of the most beautiful and rare qualities in the world. (laughs) You know, because all of us have so much to be grateful for in our lives. Um, Even when there are difficulties and challenges, you know, the basic principle of Buddhist understanding is just the interconnectedness of everything. no, I think Thich Nhat Hanh really emphasized this a lot and he used so many examples, but just if you consider the food that you know we eat and then you try to trace back all the beings involved that allowed food to be in front of us, <laughs> innumerable number of beings are part of that. And so when we just understand this and also kind of have an appreciation of gratitude for the obvious blessings in our lives, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful practice to express it even, even to ourselves. So one of the things, for example, that I do, it's just the most simple gratitude practice. It's totally simple. And again, sometimes I'll do what I mentioned. You know, uh, sometimes going out at night and just looking up at the stars and the sky and the immensity of it all, and just spontaneously, I'll have the thought, and, and I'll often say it out loud. Thank you for the blessings of my life. That's all, you know. And it's not to any particular being or anything. It's just to the universe. Just thank you for the blessings of my life, and it feels so connected and so heart-opening. So I think I think it's a really beautiful quality to actually practice, you know, in whatever way you know resonates with you. Um, but I wouldn't underestimate the power of it because it's uh, it creates a beautiful heart, you know, that particular quality.
1: Thanks, Joseph. Um, I think we're almost about done here at 29 on my end. Um, do you want to take one more question or should we?
0: Um, well, maybe. I think, I think gratitude is a beautiful ending point. I just want to mention that I spend quite a lot of time with the rest of your 100 questions. <laughs> and uh, we didn't get uh, just got to a few of them but they felt like they were common themes that many of you had written in about Um, so next week you know I can continue with some of the questions you already sent in but feel free to uh, send in more during this week and Catherine will forward them to me and I'll you know I'll just try to uh, pick out the ones that have uh, the most commonality Um, But it's great to be together. I mean, sharing the Dharma is really a wonderful thing. So why don't we just sit for a couple of minutes and let everything settle. May the merit of our time together this evening be shared by all beings everywhere. May it be for the welfare and the happiness, the peace and liberation of all beings everywhere. Thank you all for your kind attention. Uh, Wonderful to be together and... uh, see you next week hopefully <laughs> Okay. thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma seed please visit org slash donate